Hey, Rocksliders, it's Travis Hobbs. I'm going to be hosting today's show. Um, I've been absentee uh, the past few weeks. Um, sorry about that. Been kind of a crazy, wild fall. Anyways, um, I have Dr. Randy Larson. He's going to be jumping on. We're going to talk about the winter feed study that Utah um, got some pretty cool data off of. I hope all of you guys enjoy that. I know it's kind of weird doing that in the middle of the summer, but I think it's all relevant. And then we're going to talk kind of um, summer range and some of the things we've been seeing and moisture and just some of the things they've been seeing. I also, before we get started, I wanted to just thank everybody on that book giveaway from the last podcast. We had tons of reviews. I had tons of messages. I appreciate it. Devin Adams, Jeremy Black, they were our two winners. Um, books were sent out to them. So I appreciate you guys and I appreciate all of the reviews we have gotten lately on various platforms. So anyways, I appreciate it. Hopefully you guys all enjoy this. I think it's some good information. So we'll dive in. good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. All right, Rockcast. Um, I have Dr. Larson uh, back on the podcast. We've uh, had him on before, um, but this is going to be a good one. I've had a bunch of people talk and ask questions about the feeding study um, that was conducted this winter, and then we'll get into some stuff. As far as like what's going on this summer and that kind of thing. You're all well into hunting season. So Randy, appreciate you jumping on. Anytime, Travis. Happy to be here. Good to talk to you. Yeah, I really appreciate it, man. So, and for those that don't know, maybe if you didn't catch the last one, Randy, would you just kind of give a rundown of like your credentials and who you work for and that kind of thing? You bet. So Travis, I'm a wildlife biologist professor at BYU. Uh, did a PhD up your way at Utah State University. I uh, was hired here at BYU in 2008. Um, and we worked really closely with, you know, the State Division of Wildlife Resources. Um, do a lot of the, the GPS caller monitoring, collaborative, you know, work with them uh, to help us all manage mule deer and elk better. Well, that's awesome. And I, (laughs) I should say like, you're one of the, I, if you're not following, um, Randy on Instagram, you really should be because I I love your Instagram. I love all the information you share. It's, it's such a, it's such a good source. And I think guys can learn some really cool stuff. So it's really good, Randy. I appreciate you doing that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, that our, I think our world has changed in the last few decades. The way we process information has changed a lot. Yes. And so even, even though, you know, we're doing these research projects and we're producing publications in the peer-reviewed literature, those are important. But I don't, I don't know that that reaches everybody. I don't think it really does. So the, the Instagram feed is just an attempt to try to get more stuff out there and, you know, help everybody – 
spool up on the information for these species that we all care about so much. Well, it's awesome. And I think in like as hunters, I think it's a good source that they can learn and it's kind of fun. And I love, you know, the pictures and just some of that GPS stuff too. And like the data, like the tracking, I just, it's so cool what you share. So it's, it's good stuff. And a good feedback. We'll keep doing it. Yeah. So, uh, we will jump in, um, maybe right to that the feeding study that was conducted over the long winter last year. And I think I, I've talked about it on Instagram, and a lot of people have messaged and kind of asked for a follow up, Randy. And we it was crazy because you were doing a bunch of fawn captures this spring. Work was wild for me. And yeah, anyways, so we're going to get to that. It's kind of late. I know it's summer, or well, we're going into fall here, but. Anyways, I think it'll be good to talk, and I hope, yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe we just talk about why Utah decided to feed and kind of some of those trigger points that the division had set up. And yeah. maybe, yeah, and we'll just talk there, and then we'll kind of go into all the rest of it. You bet. So uh, the decision, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources has an actual, I think it's called the Winter Feeding Policy. And so they've got uh, a policy that was put together a number of years ago that describes when and how they will implement sort of emergency winter feeding. Um, That's, uh, you know, that's, it's based on, you know, current conditions, snow depth, crust, temperatures, et cetera. and so the decision to feed was made uh, by at the state level, uh, the director's office level with DWR per that winter uh, policy or that winter feeding policy that they have. Uh, the nice thing, the the nice thing about working in Utah is that we have a wonderful partnership here, and that includes uh, sportsmen and women, you know, folks yes. like you, Travis, that are out there. And so I think some of the implementation, frankly, was a result of information being passed on by concerned hunters who are out there watching what the animals are up against, you know, that that particular winter. And so, anyways, that that the decision made was the decision to feed was was made by DWR per the policy. I think with some pressure and some input from the public, uh, and then the other, you know, the partnership here between Sportsmen and women, uh, the university here, uh, and the Division of Wildlife Resources allowed us to really capture uh, momentum and actually put out callers and learn something in a very, very quick, you know, fashion that that I think will be beneficial for the entire Western U.S. For sure. And I think what's so cool is, you know, Utah is pretty amazing. Um, Sam, the local biologist here, it's just it was awesome to see him out boots on the ground the entire time. And, you know, and he's making phone calls to to me and just different people that live in different places like what are you seeing on the ground and like what's going on. And but the attentiveness and like how fast Utah yeah. worked. It was pretty impressive. And I, I can't really say enough about that. Um, and I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but not all states work like that. Like there's not a, a unit specific biologist in a lot of states don't have that. And Utah yeah. does a really good job. And it was pretty impressive to see them 
like get the ball rolling and they had feed on the ground ready to go in a warehouse that they were able to distribute like it was so fast i mean it, it all happened in just a number of days when it got bad it was yeah. just super impressive to see that so yeah. um risks associated with feeding and maybe why we the state had some trigger points utah had some trigger points and i know some of the other states do have too like idaho does um can you kind of talk about risks associated with feeding? And cause I, I think it's important in this podcast that we, you know, describe that feeding on a regular basis or every winter, it's not a good idea. And this shouldn't be used as, you know, just something that we're doing all the time or on a year to yearly basis. Yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of issues and a lot of things to think about um, with feeding you know, and you can go down the list of, um, you know, negatives, things that you would be concerned about. Obviously, when you concentrate animals, you're going to increase risk of disease transmission. And so that's, you know, one of the many things that people worry about with feeding. Uh, if you look, if you're going to feed annually uh, and, and every year, you really run the risk of disrupting uh, migration and movement mm-hmm. paths. Um, animals will learn to, you know, habituate on the on the feed sites, and they'll learn they can they can get by at, at that particular feed site. And you'll you have the potential to lose like this long term historical memory that these populations have. So that's another big thing you worry about. Um, Obviously, there's the cost. It's expensive, both in terms of, of money for the feed. Uh, it's, a, it's, you know, you participate at Travis, yeah. so it's a, it, from a time, time standpoint to, to put it on the ground. That's a huge investment of, of folks' time, even if it's donated time. It's still, that's people's, you know, for sure. valuable time that they're spending. Uh, so, you, you know, you'd worry about those and other things um, in terms of negatives. Yeah, and so uh, and, I, and I guess it's just important to, I mean, I've I've heard some comments that's like, well, why don't they feed every year? And it's like, well, it's it's really not a good idea. But like in a case like this last winter, when we have record breaking snow, I mean, it was just insane in places. Um, yeah. yeah, it uh, it was kind of it was interesting. And this whole, the point of the study, and I think uh, we maybe can jump into this. We were so lucky that Utah collars so many deer. So we had this control group already existing on the cache with collars. And so that's a unit in northern Utah. It's probably the epicenter of the bad winter, I would say, or really close to it. Um, we had this control group and I, and I can't, how many callers were in the control group, Randy? Yeah. So, um, let me look, I've got some a cheat sheet of notes here. Uh, the general number, the cash unit's been part of Utah's collar monitoring efforts since 2009, I think at least maybe even a few yeah, years. So a great data set. So yeah, long-term data set. And we try to maintain, every single year make sure that we go into winter with at least 40 adult does that have GPS collars, uh, where at least half of those, 20 of them, have been captured that particular 
fall, you know, late November, early December, so that they can get a health checkup and get a body fat measurement with the ultrasound. So you've got 20 measurements of body fat, and then and then at least an additional 20 adult females that are wearing a GPS collar. And then on top of that, we make sure there's at least 20 six-month-old fawns that are captured and collared each and every year since 2009. Uh, and so that's what we had in place, you know, before the winter got bad this year. Um, we had caught those animals in the early part of December and we're monitoring their survival through December and early January for implementation of the emergency feeding order. And, that, and that's just so lucky that, I mean, that set up, because, I mean, to do this, you really needed a control group. You can't just monitor deer on the feed site and say, oh, well, this many survived or whatever. We needed something. The deer that weren't being fed on the unit as a control group, and we're just super lucky to have that. Yeah. And then, yes, absolutely. So it's set up well for, like, a treatment control design. So you've got some good stuff to compare against. And then the other thing that helped quite a bit uh, is each of the animals, both the control animals and the ones we subsequently captured, specifically at the feed sites, were all wearing GPS collars. Mm -hmm. And so you're able able to really clearly define and articulate, okay, is this deer visiting feed regularly or not? Yes. Uh, is this really a true control deer? It's not visiting any feed sites. And so you're able to kind of parse them out that way and make sure you've got really good and true comparisons to make. Yeah. That, and that's so important. And I guess we'll talk about like, so the implementation of the feed site or the feeding process. So this has changed over the years. So I've been a part of, I've fed in Utah. Uh, I think the first time I fed was back uh, deer specifically was back in the early 2000s. And I think in those days there was a study done. I think it was Utah State University trying to kind of do this, a similar thing. They were kind of thinking, okay, is feeding deer working? And back in those days, we were feeding like a pelletized alfalfa. I'm, I'm quite sure I could have this wrong slightly, but I'm pretty sure it was a pelletized alfalfa. We had loose alfalfa. And then we also had corn intermixed. And what back in those days, we were placing it in uh, 50 gallon drums cut in half. Like, so think of plastic, those blue water drums, they were cut in half. And I think at each site, we had, I want to say, uh, just a handful, like six feeders. So three barrels cut in half at each site and had sites kind of randomly placed um, throughout the cash unit. Um, that's how it was done back in those days. And I think it was in 2017, we fed again. Um, that was a bad winter as well as a lot of you probably know, um, that kind of affected the Intermountain West as well. And in those years, that's when the first time I had heard about the long feed rows. So we were actually going out and in 17 and we were mechanically removing snow if possible if not we were compacting it like with machinery on snowmobiles whatever 
to get a hard crust or down to a good layer. And then we were actually spreading the pellets in a small, narrow strip, very long, so everybody could come to feed. So all the deer were very spread out. I think we were trying to feed them two pounds of, and it's a specialized pellet. Um, it's a mix that Utah, I, was it Colorado that come up with that mix that we were using, Randy? Do you remember? Yeah, Colorado did some work um, maybe 10 years ago working on a, a specific pellet. And I don't know if we, we use the exact formulation, but I think something similar. Similar, yeah. And so, so I guess what I want to say is it's not we're not feeding um, just alfalfa or grass hay or anything along those lines. Like it's kind of a specialized pellet. It's not just something the general public I think can go and buy. I maybe you can from that actual feed store, but it's not, it's just not some willy nilly trying to, you know, feed deer nothing or something that's wrong. So I think that's Mm -hmm. important. And I really think the implementation of the feed is very important. I know back years ago you would actually so in the early 2000 study i would see deer actually like guard one of those feed barrels and they would not let any other deer come into it so i really always wondered like how good is this working and our sites this year specifically i mean we're spreading a bag of feed i would say 75 to 100 yards of um i think they're 80 pounders So, I mean, you think of a long, narrow strip of feed where everybody can come, all of the deer can come and feed. And it's pretty amazing to me um, how defensive they are, like does kicking their own fawns off of feed. I watched that happen multiple times, like right at first when we would start spreading out the feed. But once you'd get it spread out, everybody was able to come and, and eat. So I think like the implementation of how feeding is done, I think that's a, an important thing to kind of highlight is it's not... we've learned a lot like in that mechanical snow removal to actually plow the snow off sometimes snow blowers whatever or to get them really spread out i think that really did make a big difference yeah sure and i noticed a couple times i don't know if you saw this travis but seemed like they'd be kind of strung out on the line like about one kick distance apart from yep that's exactly right is that's what they would they would guard like a eight foot i would say or seven foot row of feet it was pretty amazing yeah um and that's kind of how and so and then we also selected sites so a lot of times we were on private property um with various landowners trying to select optimal sites where deer were already basically on winter range where deer were already there um we weren't trying to like move them and we were trying to avoid highways um areas where a lot of people would be try to give them as much space on their winter range as possible and then the other important thing is is we fed yeah two pound i think it was that what i think it was was two pounds per deer per day and that was every single day i think that's important too as it's we fed every day no matter what right started early yeah and that's and that's the other thing is is i think um and maybe we should talk about that like the timing of this is so important because if you let deer and this is just my opinion but i think if you let them go too far i don't know if you're going to 
actually bring them back. I, I think once they go down the road of starvation so far that I think even supplemental feed, it, it's pretty tough. Like it's just, uh, that's not going to help. Sure. Yeah. And, and everybody, you know, you always hear the stories that especially if you're feeding the wrong stuff, they'll die with their bellies full kind mm-hmm. of idea. And, and that, that's a real thing. Um, so yeah, the notes I have, uh, Utah started feeding January 19th. Yep. According to my notes. Yep. And it was about, I would say it was about the 15th when things started getting, um, pretty ugly. That was when we were getting those storms were just lining up sagebrush. I mean, was basically covered. Um, we were seeing deer, up past their briskets and snow i mean it was having a hard time moving around like it got deep right then fast and that's pretty amazing i'm pretty sure it was the 14th 15th randy right in there when sam i was in contact with sam and it was uh, i mean three days we had feet on the ground at i don't even know how many a lot of sites so these sites were spread out um all over all over the the affected areas as far as possible i mean they were as close as possible but spread out where a lo- we fed a lot of deer and i think we had feed sites and the craziest part to me is the volunteers and how uh, the guys that we started making phone calls and we had so many reliable volunteers that stepped it up. And I mean, we fed for months every single day and it was pretty impressive. And then Utah too, I got to give them credit. Like the, it was amazing how timely our feed deliveries were. They never let us run out of feed, like everything. It was just, it was such a cool thing to see that all come together and work like that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's great. The, uh, it's a great partnership and, state agency is for a number of years now with the big monitoring effort you know this is another example of that they're they're all in on mule deer yeah we've got a lot of challenges and a lot of issues but state agency is all in so yeah it's, it's cool to watch yeah and so we started feeding um and i think it was a couple days into it um i i was just thinking to myself and i think and i think i called you and we had a few conversations yeah. about I, I, I was wondering, I mean, my, my entire time, I've always wondered, you hear so many things about does feeding work? Is it effective? Right. A lot of things say no, but in 2017, I felt like we did make a difference. I, I, that was my opinion. And we were seeing fawns late through that feeding. And I, I just wondered what in that year, we pretty much lost on the cash unit. I think it was pretty much a hundred percent of the fawns died. It was, yeah. yeah. And we were still seeing them on the feed site. And so I always was just in the back of my head. I was like, I think this works, but I always wanted to know. And we started talking a little bit about it and, you know, and you'd mentioned to me, well, I think we probably have uh, enough GPS collars. Maybe we could do it. And ideas were shared, thrown around. Kent got involved with uh, the division yeah. um, yeah. and just kind of come up with this idea that, hey, we have this control group on the unit. Let's go out on these feed sites and actually dart the de- dart deer on the feed site, collar them up, and then let's monitor them. And that's kind of how it went, right? Is that what you remember? Yeah, no, yeah absolutely. And, and 
we have here uh, a big room on campus here where we sort of collect and store GPS collars from animals that are that die over the course of the year so that we can be efficient and you know save money and, and you know if you've got a, a collar that's only been out a few months you know might as well reuse that mm-hmm. so anyways we had a bunch sitting in the lab that uh, we were able to, to to get ready and prep and and get get out you know, yeah in a matter of days yeah right it's pretty yeah. amazing yeah without that big monitoring effort that the state's involved with we wouldn't have been able to you know you're, you're months out on any kind of orders for new callers you know you just wouldn't have been able to do it without that ongoing big monitoring effort so and, and i think that's what's so cool so we started feeding january 19th i think that that's what i have too um yep. and then we were implementing collars so we were on the feed sites darting deer and collaring deer it was what in a matter of was it a week February. i have a little maybe two weeks i've got february yeah. 7th. february uh, see and that's pretty amazing and we darted i think we darted according to my notes we darted 54 deer about half of them adult females half of them uh, six-month-old fawns between february 7th and february 23rd that's amazing and to get it yeah. done that fast and to be yeah so yeah, started feeding January nineteenth. Had collared uh, deer. Deer were collared on the feed sites. Um, yeah, after February seventh, and we kind of hit different sites at different times. Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty amazing. And so we ended up with in the so on the feed study we had what was it again, Randy? It was fifty four. Is that right? Yeah, so we had a total of, well, we darted a total of 54 deer between February 7th and 23rd, and those would represent, um, your, you know, your treatment or your fed animals to, mm-hmm. compare, to compare against animals that have been caught, um, you know, December, yep. the helicopter. Uh, so anyways, you got basically similar sample sizes. Um, between the control and the treatment groups, we're able to look at um, a couple of things that I think are important. One, you're able to look at uh, fawn survival. So how many of the fawns mm-hmm. that were alive, uh, you know, how, how many made it to like April 30, which we kind of generally consider to be the end of winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how much, you know, what was adult survival like during that same time period? The other thing that we did, uh, the helicopter, we had the helicopter here in the state in the middle of March, uh, working in, uh, in southern Utah, and we were able to bring that up for a day on March 16th to recapture uh, control deer that were not getting fed and measure their body fat. And so we did both control and treatment deer. We darted some deer in, on that same day, March 16th. And so anyways, we, we have a, a, a decent little sample of body fat measurements uh, to compare as well. So not only survival body fat uh, or you know survival of fawns and adult does, but also body fat of the adult females. And then one of the interesting things we've been able to look at too would be movement patterns mm-hmm. over over the spring for animals that uh, survive. So that's amazing. Yeah, 
it really is unbelievable that we got all that information. I, it really is on one of the worst winter. I, well, probably the worst winter we've had since, I don't know, eighties, probably. I, I, I don't know for sure, but probably pretty close. Some of the record, I mean, snow water equivalent in a lot of the mountains. Yeah, all-time records. Yeah, all-timers. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, anyways, it's and crazy. Our, and just to, so let's so maybe jump into what happened on, like, what were some of the results we, we were sure. able to see? Yeah, you bet. Uh, so the first thing that, that happened, and we were, you know, really closely monitoring animals every time, uh, GPS collars have a little bearing inside of them. So if they don't move for uh, either six or eight hours, we get an email notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you were very helpful. Sam was busting his butt to pick up. So anytime that we had an, e- an email alert of mortality, you know, we're, out, we're in there picking them up and, make, you know, seeing what happened to them and why they died. So, so that's another piece of information. Yeah, and I think and I think that's another thing we ought to talk about is I I don't know if all the states do this on their survival, but Utah does an amazing job. Like Sam is out there. I mean, he was just crushing it this winter, getting out there uh, yeah. every deer. I mean, within I don't know a day, they're able to get there. Why there's still evidence to make sure they didn't yeah. die from coyotes or to actually come up with why like what caused this deer to die instead of going and picking up the collar in june or may or whatever right. like we're right on it try to gather i mean it's a it's like crime scene it's pretty amazing like doing, yeah it, yeah yeah oh yeah it's 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 total crime scene field necropsy yeah. it's a huge effort and again it goes back to this partnership we have uh, you know, dedicated state agency and, and a ton of those biologists are, you know, jumping at those email alerts and, and getting out there like Sam and picking things up quick. If they, um, we have funding in place here at the university. And so we'll take a, a second position. And so if there's, as soon as there's an email alert, uh, you know, Sam will be in, in constant contact with the local biologist and if they can't get to it within a day or two all they have to do is tell us and we will scramble uh, university resources you know trucks and students brock and myself you know brock yep. and myself sometimes will do it and and we will make sure they all get picked up uh, quickly and so that's again it comes back to that wonderful partnership we have otherwise I don't think you could do it. Yeah. And to make sure that, you know, we're not counting deer that were killed by a mountain lion or, you know, hit on a highway, whatever, that we're getting accurate information. I think that's so vital to this and try to learn something from it than just some random cause of death that really can't be attributed to winter. Yes. And, and then the other piece that you've got that, that helps you tease it apart. So if you've got an accurate cause of death, you can identify, you know, which herd units might have high predation rates from which predator. Yes. You know, you know which ones might be limited a little bit by predation. Uh, but you've also got the, the condition and the body fat information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from a statewide perspective, it's been super valuable. And we're able to, I'll give you two examples that are kind of close to each other. Um, 
and and one would be the Manti, mm-hmm. uh, especially the south end of the Manti. And that, you know, people have complained about low deer numbers for a number of years. Um, if you go in and look at these same metrics that we're looking and talking about, you have really fat deer in some years. I remember one March, the deer off the South Manti were the fattest that we measured in the entire state. Uh, so it, it didn't seem like that was a, at that time, like a habitat limitation or a habitat yeah. condition. If you're, if you're the fattest in the state, Yep. But, but despite that, we had really low adult female survival. Adult does typically have an, a plus 80%, often 85, sometimes 88% uh, average survival rate across the Intermountain West. And we were averaging regularly on that South Manti, like in the low 70s or upper 60s. Wow. So way, way low. With the fattest deer. Yeah. And if and you know immediately that's a problem because mm-hmm. adult females are what really drive population growth. Mm-hmm. And that's the most important sort of segment and cohort of the population if you want to grow more deer. Yes. So you know immediately you got a problem in survival, uh, but without picking up the collars and doing those field necropsies, you don't know what's killing them. And in that situation, it turned out it was almost all primarily mountain lions. Yeah, and that's so, so crazy to get that information. Yeah. And so anyways, the state responded, um, increased mountain lion harvest quite a bit. And we've seen three years of really good survival now in the upper 80s, low 90s as a result. Um, so that's kind of one scenario, but it, it's really dangerous to think that that applies everywhere. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the other scenario that, that's down there is the boulder unit, uh, which people, again, have complained a lot about low deer numbers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And if you look at... You know, yeah, they are getting, there's some mountain lion predation, but one December we caught down there, uh, I think we had just barely under 6% body fat on average, which is extremely low. Should, yeah. should be up in the 8, 9, 10, even 12 range. Mm-hmm. And they were essentially the skinniest deer in the entire state. Mm-hmm. Uh and so that comes back to either drought related or, yeah. or, or range condition. Yeah. And, and people, if you hunt the boulder or know about the boulder, it's, you know, it's famous for really large elk, but it hasn't probably had a fire in a hundred years up on the top of it. And so, you know, it's, it, it, it doesn't maybe have the nutrition in the summer range. Yeah. The summer range, the access to nutrition that, uh, for deer anyways. Um, so in that scenario, you know, you can, you could work on lions all you want, but you're not going to grow with the skinniest deer in the state. You're just not going to grow very much or very, very quickly. And, um, and that's so important because I know a lot of people have really kind of, well, what, why is it important that the state goes out? I, I've heard this just that why, why are we collaring deer? We already know what's killing them. We already know these things. And it's like, well, not necessarily like the, on yeah. a unit by unit specific reason and trying to come up just like those examples you just gave. That's why it's so important. And I'm so yeah. glad Utah's invested into this and trying to, I mean, maximize the deer herds throughout the state. I think that's pretty cool information. Yeah, I agree with you. One of the surprising things for me has been 
how you could have even adjacent units that might be regulated by different things. Yeah. Uh, you know, the South Manta is not that far from the boulder, and you've got one that's got pretty clear, strong evidence of predation as the limiting factor, and you've got another one that's got the skinniest deer in the state. Um, that's crazy. It's going to be more of a habitat, you know, limitation or habitat issue. Yeah, that's so crazy. That I mean, it's just good stuff. Yeah, that close. I mean, yeah, that's pretty amazing. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Join the millions of hunters who trust Onyx to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Some of the key features of Onyx are the ability to combine critical land data with on-the-ground exploration to build your perfect map and find success. All your save markups sync automatically to all devices for use in the field or from home. Onyx includes nationwide public and private land boundaries. Hunt with confidence and find new opportunities using color-coded public land maps, private parcel ownership information, and clearly marked boundaries. Mark locations crucial to your hunt with custom waypoints. Measure distances of your walk-in, shot across canyon, or distance to the nearest access point with lines. View maps in 3D and choose satellite, topo, or hybrid base maps to have the best, easy-to-read visual for your hunt. Go as far from the grid as you want. No cell service required. Save detailed maps, layers, and markups for offline use. With live tracking, and current location features, you'll make it out and back just like you planned. Don't risk getting turned around or lost. So if you're ready to make the jump to Onyx, use the code ROCKCAST at checkout and save yourself 20%. But uh, yeah, on the on our feed study, so getting back to that. Yep. So let's talk, yeah, so let's talk about the numbers and what happened and kind of what we've, we've yeah. seen and yeah. So, yeah, first thing, and this probably isn't that surprising, is the fawns are going to be the most sensitive to the severe mm-hmm. winters. You know, they don't have a chance to put on much fat before their first winter. So we started seeing initially right off the bat, we started losing uh, lots of the control fawns. And Sam, you know, Sam Robertson with DWR is picking a bunch of those up. Yes. Um and so in terms of fawn survival, so these are six-month-olds when they're captured. Uh, if you look at the percentage that survived to the end of April, so from when they were captured starting February 7th, and by the way, uh, with the control group, we just we started February 7th. So these are... Oh, everybody uh, started. So control uh, group... So yeah. non-fed and fed deer started yeah. at the exact yeah, date. Okay. Yep. So we look at we're looking at. I mean, we had collared fawns before. February yes. In the control group. Yep. But to make these numbers comparable. Yep. I'm you had to you. make it. You had to make it to February seventh as a control fawn in order to be included in this in this number. But it, it's really stark. Uh, the fed group survival is estimated at fifty three percent. And those that were not fed all perished, so zero percent estimate. So a fifty-three percent increase yeah. on fed right. deer, on fed fawns, six-month-old fawns versus non-fed. Yeah. So fifty-three percent of those that we darted, starting February seventh, made it all the way through the end of winter to April thirtieth. All of the ones that we captured with the helicopter, 
they all died that weren't accessing feed. That's insane. That's so crazy. Yeah, yeah 53%. And, and that's, so like you said, fawns are the most, I mean, they're usually the ones that are going to die. That's usually what we see on a bad winter is low fawn survival. So I think the 0% on the non-fed given this winter really yeah. was probably, I mean, that was almost to be expected. And you, I've heard numbers out of Wyoming, Idaho, very similar things on their non-fed deer or just their deer that are out on, yeah. <clears throat> on the landscape. But that's pretty amazing, 53%. And then on our adult. Yeah, the adults, this one, the adults are a lot tougher and they'll hang in uh, quite a lot better than the fawns. Uh, you know, for reference, average survival, Intermountain West, it's you know should, you should be above eighty percent. There's been numbers of eighty-two percent. I think that's Utah's long-term average for adult doe survival, and that's annual. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a there's about a decade. It's about a decade old, but there's a tri-state publication from I think it includes Idaho, Wyoming, and Utah that 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 came up with an eighty-five percent average. So you should be mid eighties. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that surprised to see a difference on the fawns. The adults surprised me a little bit. Bed deer averaged uh, 81% survival. And non-fed deer, uh, only 55. So a significant uh, positive difference. And you're looking at 26% difference in survival on the adults. Yeah, that's amazing. So the fed deer ended up almost to the average. So if we yeah. were just talking about a normal run-of-the-mill winner at 81% and the non-fed deer were down at 55%, that's that's pretty yeah. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, that one was maybe a little bit unexpected on my end uh, to see such a big difference there. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the thing too, is, you know, if you can make a difference with adult survival, I mean, maybe that's where it starts to become worth it on to say whether to feed, and this is my opinion, to feed or not to feed. I mean, to see that kind of increase on adults, that's pretty amazing to me. Yeah, and, and in my opinion, the best part about this is there's still and always going to be good reasons not to feed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and we can talk more about those maybe or, yeah. you know, listed a few. So that's always going to be there. Um, what this does, in my opinion, is it elevates the conversation. So we've now got sort of hard numbers. Okay, if you feed this way, we've got some numbers on the cost, which I'll go through. We've got some numbers on how many uh, you know deer we think we fed, uh, that kind of thing. Um, so you've got numbers on the cost, and now you've got numbers on what you did to increase survival rates. Mm-hmm. And you can just, in my opinion, you can have a much more sort of sophisticated conversation about whether it's worth it in any particular year. Yeah, and I think that's important. Instead of just... I mean, you know, you hear both sides of the argument, whatever your opinion, whatever it might be, um, never to feed or always feed. You know, you got the extremes 
And then I think the thing that lacks on both extremes is a lot of times we didn't really have a good data set. I know that study that was I was a part of um, in the early 2000s out of Utah State, that was quoted quite a few times as a good reason not to feed. But looking back, and hindsight's 2020, but looking back at kind of how we were implementing the feed in those days versus like the current technology and best use practices of like what we're doing today, it's it's a stark difference just in my redneck out there on the landscape opinion of what we were doing, you know, 20 something years ago versus today. And then back in those days, you know, it was, it was, you had telemetry callers and now we have GPS callers. And I mean, it's just, there's a whole bunch of, it just, yeah, it's just one of those things as time goes on and you can be a little more accurate, but I think that's, what's cool is at least there's some solid data that, Hey, this is what happened. This is how much it costs. This is how many deer, what, you know, and going into all that stuff. I just think that's a great, it's just great to have instead of opinions to have actual data and information. I think that's important. Sure. Uh, Here's a little, yeah, I agree with hundred percent. Here's another little piece of information on the body fat. Oh yeah. Let's jump into that. Yeah. Um, So one of the things that has come out of, Utah's long-term monitoring effort is it is really important to get fat deer before mm-hmm. they enter winter. And so, you know, maybe we need to focus a little more energy and effort on on summer habitat, making sure we've got the right mix of conditions for these animals to get healthy and fat before the enter winter. Uh, if you look at some non-fed controlled deer, they were captured in early December, and they had... Uh, body fat of 10.2 percent which for for the cash unit is sort of just average gotcha it's not horrible i think the all-time high is 13 to 14 percent up there uh so anyways we had about an average fat level going into winter uh when we caught animals starting in february they had already burnt three percent of their body fat so we're down at 6.9 percent uh by early february and then when we came back in mid-March, so just a month later, the deer that were fed uh, were holding on to still about 6% body fat, so they'd only lost 1% from February. And the control deer are down below 5% at 4.7. Wow. So you've got about a 1% difference in body fat, uh, a 1% you know, greater decline in body fat for deer that weren't fed uh, over that month from February to mid-March. So anyways, that's significant. I mean, I mean, that, I mean, somewhere in there is probably death. You know, there's probably a line that like this, you get below this, you're done. And yeah. 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 So yeah, 1% is huge. Uh, And so anyways, there's a difference there, which is interesting. It's also interesting to me that fed deer started at 7% and declined to 5.8. So even though they were hop, you know, we're feeding them the best nutrition we could, they're still losing mm-hmm. body fat, which I, I find somewhat interesting as well. Again, I think that reinforces how important it is to try and get animals up in the low teens, you know, 10 to 15% body fat in December 
so that they can then, you know, if you're going to lose body weight and body fat, even on supplemental good, high nutritious food, then you need to start high yes. before you hit the winter. Well, you know, and it's a, it kind of comes back to the whole, you know, deer numbers declining. And I think for years, um, at least this has kind of been my opinion and I, I, you always hear it is it's loss of winter range, it's winter range and, th- and that contributes. There's no doubt, but I think too, what's interesting is summer range and summer condition. I never felt like there was much stress on it until as of lately. And some of this information you guys have been gathering and how important it is that they come in in great shape, whether that's, you know, a moist, lots of moisture, all these things. But I always look back and I think what's changed since the eighties or something. And I think, you know, fire suppression, fire suppression has become, it's so good and we're i think a lot of the places that used to burn um and that's a natural thing that's supposed to happen we're supposed to have fires um i mean a lot of these i i get you know <laughs> human caused fires it's it's not a good thing but when we have these natural fires sometimes it is a good thing and it's just interesting to think about all these things and the summer range discussion. I, uh, I don't know. I just look at uh, so many places that are so overgrown, so thick, subalpine fur um, taking over in a lot of aspen stands, you know, and choking right. aspen mm-hmm. out. And we, we could go on and on about what's kind of changed over the years, but it's just interesting to talk about these things. And, and just one thing to think about is you know what is like yeah it's the summer how important is that and i think like you said i think it's been pretty well documented that fat deer going into winter can withstand a tougher winter and if they're coming in in yeah. a bad shape they're not doing as yeah. well yeah and and you know you see you know, you see body fat being positively associated with survival over the winter uh the neonate projects that we're involved with now where we're catching the brand new baby fawns, you see those, how fat mom was in December, influencing how big that fawn is when it's born in June, and then how that influences the survival of the fawn, yes. the growth rate of the fawn, how big it gets by December, how big they are in December, how much they weigh when you catch them in December, is a huge determinant of their survival and you know, the chances of surviving that first winter. And so, you know, as you see, a, a long and and sort of deep connection uh, to, to a bunch of positive things with nutrition and body fat. Yeah. yeah and you, and you, you know, and then we get into the whole antler development thing. It's pretty interesting. You know, the various studies that have shown, you know, a unhealthy fawn is probably never going to throw a good rack, no yeah. matter what happens over its life. And it's just all those things. Yeah. 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 Well, this is pretty awesome stuff, Randy. It was, it was very cool to be a part of this and i was it's just awesome information and data and i think if there's anything that good that come of it i think we have some hard numbers and maybe reasons to consider feeding um do you want to talk about the cost do you have some of that stuff i've got some of that right in front of me here you bet so that again i think the, the best part of this whole thing is it, there's numbers to now have sort of a more informed discussion. Mm-hmm. Let me just run through some of these total costs. Uh, and this is an estimate that uh, Sam and, and Jim Christensen, the DWR biologist in the Northern region kind of put together. Uh, 
unit wide, so the entire cash unit, the estimate was approximately 5,800 deer were fed. Um, 530 tons of food, and the total cost on the food, uh, $367,000. And that's so a significant really, expense. Yeah, really expensive. What that number doesn't include, Travis, would be all of the truck fuel, people time, mm-hmm. you know, vol- volunteer time, your time. Yep. Uh, and so if you started factoring those things in, I think you'd be well over half a million dollars. I think so. Yep. So it's, it's, and yeah, the time, it's hard to explain how much effort and, you know, when we had various, I could go on and list them all, but so many guys, you know, whether it was a rancher that volunteered his tractor to go plow out these sites or construction, guys that brought in heavy equipment to plow these sites and continued to do so to get access to make sure we were scraped down so we had a good spot to start Um, various city agencies county agencies there was a ton of work involved but i think yeah it's it's hard to say i mean all of the things that went in but yeah i do think half a million for sure and you know and for I guess that question comes up, is it worth it to save 5,800 deer? Well, if those numbers carry across to me, (laughs) I mean, that's a pretty big difference that was made. I I think, you know, 5,800 deer and you start plugging, you know, the survival, the increase um, versus fed versus non-fed, it's pretty amazing. And I don't know how you put a price on a mule deer. I mean, I've said this before. And a close friend of mine, his dad always said Gary Sorensen, and I, I, it's funny because he's always said mule deer is the most valuable species in the world. And a lot of people kind of don't, that people, that statement makes people laugh, but then you really think about it. I mean, look what a tag on some of these units, like what is the value of a mule deer? It's pretty hard to say, I mean, there's been mule deer tags that have went for more than rhino in Africa than anything. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, a, mm-hmm. yeah. So I don't know. It's hard to say the value of a mule deer it's, but it's pretty high to me. I know that. Yeah. It's high to a lot of people. I'm thinking right now about just some of the best hunts I've been on. And, you know, I've got uh, a mount in my office at home that I look at a lot. It's still, still paying, you know, yep. I'm still getting return on that investment. Exactly. I think about that a lot, and it's you know fond memory. You think about, and you'll you'll see this as your as your daughter grows up. But you know, I'm starting to hunt with my kids now. Yes. Uh, and there's some real value personally to to me and a whole bunch of other hunters too. So it, this gives you just one side of it um, that sort of tries to capture some of those costs, but certainly there's other other aspects to it too when you start talking about worth for sure and i think and it's and i want to just say utah there was never any at least that i heard there was never any discussion about even when this drug on through april we were feeding through april there was never any like oh we're out of funds or whatever we had various sportsman groups sportsmen for fish and wildlife i know um stepped up they contributed money. Um, I, I know it's just cool to see. It was never an issue as far as the cost. It was always what's the right thing to do. And 
that that was pretty amazing to me. I I know there's costs involved, and I know that <laughs> there's budgets and everything else, and I know it probably blew uh, just employee time and everything else was was hard but i just appreciated that that wasn't the number one concern from utah it was the best what do, what's the best thing for wildlife sure and and i think too you know some of the conservation permit you know that gets a lot of people wonder where their money's going where's this stuff going and some of that stuff you know it, it pays back on things like this so it's it's just it's cool what Utah's doing. I appreciate it. And it, it's pretty amazing to see an agency be so proactive. I, I hear a lot of bad things, but I know like on this um, specifically, it's pretty amazing to me, especially looking at some of the neighboring states and kind of how things turned out for them. And I, I won't throw them under the bus, but I do. It, it's It was definitely not ran like this. Yeah, well, a great partnership here, and we're, I, you know, we're able to. Yeah, you guys, BYU, it's amazing. You well, know, well, yeah, and we couldn't do it without, um, you know, partnership with the state agency and partnership with the conservation groups, you mm -hmm. know, the Foundation Sportsman for Fish and Wildlife, all the volunteers that help, and you were able to learn something. You know, it's not. You know, you, and, and this would be my own opinion. We don't want to feed every year. Yes, um, but if we get in kind of another epic winter like we we have uh, we've got some data and some details on how much you can affect those survival rates and and what that would cost and you know if we get to a situation where we've got an emergency feeding implementation uh, you're not you're not just stuck having those same old tired discussions and arguments about oh it doesn't work or you know you, you've got oh, yes well, in this situation it affected survival this much well and that helps management um you know upper management make that decision too i mean because there does come a point i mean you couldn't feed and you know when i think about um just various places you know like i think about the wyoming winter range like where <laughs> how would you start in places with such low population i i don't know i it would be a tough thing there's places that it would just be uh, the cost could be just unbelievable yeah. And, and there's all those things, but at least, yeah, like you said, there's something that they can say, okay, well, uh, for this price, we fed this many deer, this was survival and, you know, yeah, yeah start to do work the math there. Sure. Yep. Well, that's awesome, Randy. And I, I think that's pretty much all I had on the feeding stuff. Um, it's pretty, it was, it was really cool. It really was. So, um, you want to just jump into and I, I we've we harped on this winter and in your podcast with Robbie and if you haven't listened to that everybody that's listening you should go back and listen to it because it was really good but you talked about I think you said something that I really like that you would take a bad winter and moisture over drought and I think that's so important as we look at you know the state as a whole and there was definitely these places that just got horrible like pounded but yeah. let's talk about like all the good that this moisture did. I know um, for me personally um, with, I actually, <laughs> my new job, um, I'm doing fuel moisture content um, for fire suppression stuff. And I know that like record breaking fuel moisture contents um, up around this winter, like I've seen antelope bitter brush with 
10, 11 inch leaders. Um, yeah. The sage is just like the seeds on the sage are just unbelievable. The growth that I've been seeing grass everywhere you go up to my elbow or to my armpits, like just unbelievable. Can you kind of talk about some of the good yeah. that you're seeing and like what's going on maybe throughout the state and yeah. You bet. I'd be happy to. And, and it, it has been a, a little bit of an evolution in thinking on my own part as well to get to the point where you would take a winter like this over a drought. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember as a kid, every time you had a big snowfall, I'd always be worried, you know, what, how are the deer going to yeah. do? Uh, but the more that we've done this monitoring, uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion that and I don't want to diminish how bad it was. For sure. And, you know, the some of the Wasatch back, Bear Lake Valley where you're at, you know, Morgan, you know, Echo Reservoir type areas. I mean, it, there's some pretty serious uh, yes. hits to those populations. Uh, you know, 75% mortality on adult females and, you know, 80% mortality kind of range, mm-hmm. which, it, which is bad. Bad. Right? So, so those will take, you know, they will come back, and they'll take it, but they'll take a number of years to do that. So I don't want to diminish that, but on the whole, you you can, you know, if you in a, in a drought scenario, you have you have small fawns that struggle to survive, adult females are dying, they're getting uh, some of those late summer, early fall diseases more readily, like blue tongue and EHD, which kill them. And, and on top of that, they're beating up the habitat and the range is suffering because of the drought. Yes. You flip the script now and we've got, you know, these record-breaking fuel moisture levels like you're talking about. We've had record-breaking snow. And, yes, we've lost animals, especially in the northern half of the state. But the, the landscape is rejuvenated because of that moisture. Mm-hmm. And so the animals, I, I would expect, it'll depend a little bit what happens in October and November. If we get a warm, especially a warm November, where uh, they're able to eat still, you know, grasses and forbs that are still in good condition with lots of nutrition, I expect to see like a record-breaking fat levels for, yes. for most of the animals in the state. Um and then they'll go into this next winter, you know, in good shape would be the expectation. They'll have high survival and they'll start to rebound and bounce back. And you've also just given kind of a big shot in the arm to the landscape, mm-hmm. the shrubs, the plants, uh, and overall habitat quality is up. So I would, as, as bad as it is in some places, I would vote for what we had this last winter over what we had two years ago, which was horrible drought everywhere. I'd, I'd vote for that every, every day of the week. For sure. And I, I just look at like the landscape. It's just unbelievable. Like places up, um, you know, in like 9,000, 9,000 feet, wildflowers yeah. growing in August, like that are, I mean, it's just crazy. Right. Like things I've never seen in my lifetime before. Um, it's just wild to be out there to look at the grass. I mean, even places with 
that usually, I mean, or the, my mules starve and I'm trying to find him a piece of grass to eat. And, you know, it's not this year. Like it's everywhere. Right. It's just, it's crazy to be out in it and to be looking at it. And I really hope that that's my thoughts too, is I hope that we really have a big bump in fat and, and then hopefully I hope we just don't get crushed um, as bad this winter and we just have a really wet spring and wet summer. That's the other thing this year has just been incredible, like the storms. And it's been since spring up here, like we just keep getting storms. Like It's crazy how they just keep lining up and getting significant rain. Um, pretty yeah. wild. And, and if you look across Utah's sort of long-term statewide data on body fat, there is a strong signal for monsoon moisture like we're having this summer mm-hmm. as really, really positive on fat. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. Like we almost have about a, a decade, every, the, the twos, threes, and fours, we're often in El Nino and yeah. El Nino, we've got a strong forecast for El Nino this winter. It generally means warmer and wetter. And yep. so we should, you, you know, if that holds true, it's impossible to predict the weather more than a day or two in advance. But if that holds <laughs> true, you know, we should come through this this winter. And I don't expect it to be as big as last winter. And if it's just average and we're going in with fat animals in December, we'll come through just fine. Yep, for sure. And that's a, and that's a good thing as I, I think, I mean, it's been hard for me this year. I'll be honest, like just seeing what's happened in up through Idaho, you, everywhere I hunt in Utah, um, I've been out in Wyoming a little bit. It's, it's crazy to see the landscape without all those hat, like we're down significantly on a lot, in a lot of places. Um, and it's just, it's hard to see that. And I, even, I've felt like it's been tough for me to get the motivation that I usually have to go out scouting. It's just, it's tough out there. It really is. And now the hunting season's going, I mean, I'm wound up and I'm excited, but it is a different, and you wonder like, okay, how fast is it going to come back? But that's, what's always in the back of my mind is I really do think positive. I think things are going to all work out things will bounce back there's still big bucks out on the landscape i guarantee there's going to be some good bucks um taken there already has been down south like i've just been blown away like some of the things that i'm hearing where places like down in the desert environments down um southern utah northern arizona nevada i mean these places are producing some great bucks and you look at the west as a whole and they've been dealing with drought so long and it's been so bad. So hopefully we just see a good, I know this, when there's lots of mule deer, everybody's happy. So, and that's no. what I'm hoping for. Yeah. And, there, and there's some silver linings, you know, again, I don't want to diminish how big of a hit, you know, 80% mortality is on the adult population, but there's silver linings. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a lot of, you know, you've got a lot of plants that are getting a little bit of a rest that will bounce back you've got you know some you can look at some hillsides and and you could look and see like certain plants take bitter brush for example mm-hmm. uh, all the plants on some hillsides will be like the exact same age yes because in part they, you know there's certain conditions that they needed to germinate and then to grow up and get out of the kind of the, 
get enough of a head start on the browsing that they can actually survive. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that might be a little bit of a positive to think about is what's happening in a positive direction on on the plants and the vegetation. And then the other thing I tell people all the time, Travis, it only takes one buck. Yes, take, that's right. To take, to take your hunt from ho-hum and not so great to amazing. Yes, that's so true. <laughs> that is what it is too, is one bug. Yeah, yeah you won't even yeah. think about wading through all of the landscape that you didn't see anything if you get a good, yeah, that's so true. Uh, you know, get out and enjoy it. Uh, it's it's a privilege to be able to chase these animals and, you know, what better thing to be doing in the fall than hunting for sure. That's what I think. So it's so true. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and one thing I noticed this year, and I've heard it from a bunch of hunters. In fact, for a while during my summer scouting, I was thinking, what is going on? But what's interesting to me is throughout this really where the winter was hit hard. I have noticed and the spring went super long. So I'm going to throw out an example on August 8th. I saw two bulls that were probably, I mean, they were mature, going to be six. I, they weren't finished out. And this is what's interesting to me. They were all balled up on August 8th. Like I'm guessing looking at the, how big around the balls of velvet were on the end. Like they look like they should have been. If I, if you would have took that picture and said, what time of year was this? I would have said early July for sure. Just the way they looked. I noticed antler development in my scouting this year has been like it was way behind. Do you, do you have any comments on that or what you would attribute that to? And it, I, it's just been interesting to me. And velvet bulls, um, you generally, this has been just kind of a rule of thumb to me, is usually during that third Saturday in August, which is generally when the Utah um, elk hunt star, their deer hunt star. Usually I, it's rare for me to see a bull in velvet, unless it's like a small, you'll see some raghorns or a spike, whatever. But this year I was amazed. I was blown away. Can you kind of talk about that and what maybe would lead to that? Yeah, no, that's just a, a great comment. And I think it's consistent. Uh, some of the folks that I've talked with in the central part of the state here have talked about that, like delayed, and they've even, at least specifically with elk, I've even heard some complaints like antler growth isn't great this mm-hmm. year. Elk, um, you know, for, on the biological side of it, you would talk about okay, there's there's really only a few places to put uh, excess to put energy yes. and nutrition. You can grow, you can put it into reproduction. Uh, for ungulates, you could put it into antlers, mm-hmm. uh, and and obviously you need. A certain amount of energy just to maintain you know you you, you got to put it into maintenance you got to breathe yep. uh, and so it, it's not a stretch in my opinion to talk about okay you've got a bad winter animals elk in particular are you know mostly making it uh, there were a few places where we had you know significant mortality of elk but in general that that's not the case so elk are mostly making it but it's long the spring's dragging on uh, the grass isn't turning green till later than usual. So it, it, to me, it's not a stretch at all to expect or think that the development would be at a, 
at a slower rate or delayed. Yeah, and I was wondering too where the spring, one thing that was kind of different about this winter versus 2017, like 2017 was a bad winter, but it, spring did come. I, I mean, it wasn't near like this. Like for instance, I have yeah. a picture of my daughter with her Easter basket on Easter Sunday. And I mean, I got snow banks at my house that were seven feet tall. And I, sure. I was thinking about that and I don't remember it being like that in 2017. It definitely didn't drag on like this year. And I do know of a couple bucks that I had chased for uh, multiple seasons that I never remember seeing the antler development like be behind like this year. And I was wondering is it, maybe it was more correlated to just that when green up finally happened was so delayed. It took so long that I was wondering in my head, I'm like, I wonder if that's what did it. Cause it's the first time I've ever noticed just some of the things like bulls balled up like that, that looked like they were, yeah. you know, July elk, um, in, you know, August 8th. It was just sure. really interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. We talk, you know, we talk and think a lot about antlers and what, what creates big antlers. And certainly, you know, a lot of people want to throw out uh, genetics and mm -hmm. talk a lot about genetics and there's certainly a genetic component. Um, but in my opinion, the, the biggest factor uh obviously you have to attain a certain age but you know once you've attained that age the biggest factor is nutrition yes in my opinion. well and, and i that makes sense to me too as you think about i mean even during those drought years you know you see these certain bucks make maybe you throw out the arizona strip for instance um they're under drought, but for whatever reason, there was always these few outliers that still seem to grow really big. And I'm like, maybe they just had access to better nutrition or, you know what I sure. mean? Where yeah. everybody else was struggling. Yeah. And, and we did that. Uh, we did this big long-term kind of a retrospective study and we collected, we had Boone and Crockett scores mm -hmm. and we had ages for both deer and elk, thousands of them from all over the Intermountain West over like a 20-year time frame. And we had a, we had a student um, who now works for Idaho Fishing Game, Eric Freeman, yeah. who, did, who took all this time to go back through. Uh, so we had, we had the age, the score, and then the year that they were harvested. And these were coming, a lot of these are coming off, you know, like the Primo, Areas that people want to hunt. Yeah, uh, a lot of a lot of it CWMU's in Utah, private land in Montana, Colorado, New Mexico, and we could start throwing out the names, and they'd be all names that people would recognize as as sort of hot spots for hunting deer and yeah. elk. And he, anyways, he took all those data and went back through all the like the precip records, uh, the weather station data, and and. And we did this kind of comparative look at what factors were associated with antler scores being high or versus low. And, you know, you needed to get to the right age, but there's not, on the average, there's not a lot of change in average antler score for mule deer once you get over four. Gotcha. Get a little bit, they get a little bit bigger on average. Uh, for elk, it's about six and a half. They get, you know, they do get a little bigger. They get you know, more mass and that kind of thing. But on average, there's not a ton of 
change. Now that's the average, right? Yeah. There's, individual, there's individual animals that are blowing up one year and there's others that are, you know, wasting away between one year and the next. But on average, you, you're not changing that much the average score. What was associated with huge changes, and let me just pull this up and I'll give you some of the details. From like the worst drought year in that 20-year data set to the best sort of precip conditions, that was about a 26-year or 26-inch change in score on a deer. That's interesting. On, on average. Well, uh, that, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The other the other crazy thing. So, anyways, that and that's the year they're harvested. And so, you know, this is a good year, especially for the southern units and in southern part of the Intermountain West. I, mm -hmm. I expect you're going to see big bucks continue to hit the social yes. media. Yes. Uh, and you know, we've seen plenty already on the archery hounds, but that'll continue because it's a really good year down there. Rockcast is also powered by MagView Gear. Step up your digiscoping game with the most streamlined digiscoping adapter in the industry. MagView pioneered a new era of digiscoping with its universal minimalistic spotting scope and binocular adapters. The system is designed to eliminate the frustrations and inconveniences found in traditional digiscoping systems. MagView's multifunctional system consists of three interchangeable designs the S1 spotting scope adapter, the B1 binocular adapter, and the MagView phone plate. All MagView systems create an incredibly strong, stable, digiscoping platform and only require a super thin stainless steel plate adhered to the phone to secure it to the optic. No more bulky phone cases, no more optic-specific adapters. MagView is the digiscoping choice for minimalist hunters looking for one adapter to fit most in-class optics. Many Rockslide members and staff have chosen the MagView system. You can see our in-depth review at rockslide.com and the Rockslide YouTube channel. To discover more about MagView gear, visit magviewgear.com for full specification, installation videos, and tips and tricks. Start capturing your own MagView moments today. Uh, it's a different story up north, right? Because you've got such an epic winter, you had such a a large die-off. You've lost so many of those older age class animals. So it'll, it'll be tougher up north. Yep. But again, it only takes one. That's right. Change your hunt. But the, the other interesting thing here, at least that I find interesting, is we looked at not only the year, the year that they were harvested, what were the conditions, what was the precept like, but also the year that they were born. Mm. So what what conditions did mom face yep the winter that she's got the baby in utero and then the summer that she's nursing that baby and if you go from the worst conditions to the best conditions there's an additional like about eight inches of antler that are associated over with, average yeah over average yep you yep could, you could yep and that would be Conditions associated with that five or six year old buck five or six years ago when it was in utero. Yeah, that's interesting. That yeah. really is interesting stuff. So there, I mean, it's in, in theory, there could be these magical years mm -hmm. where you had kind of a bubble of four or five, six year old bucks. And the current year they're growing their antlers is really good. 
but also the conditions four, five, and six years ago were also pretty good. And then you could get to the place where you're talking about like a, on average, 30 plus inch increase in average antler size. Yeah, and it would be really interesting if we could somehow get all the, and I mean, no, this is impossible, but it would be super cool if we could somehow get all of the deer that didn't even, you know, that didn't even hit the Boone and Crockett minimums and everything and didn't yeah, really know there'd probably be even more of a, yeah. So it's anyway, very interesting. Lot, yeah, there's a lot that goes into antlers. Genetics is certainly a part of it, but I think you'll, you're seeing it kind of this year is the kind of the role of nutrition, especially in the southern units where, you know, you, you take in Utah, for example, Pine Valley. Is there ever an amount of snow that would be detrimental to them? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, just pile it on for them. Yeah, for better, sure. Really. And yeah, and and getting like their fawn survive. I mean, that that's another interesting thing is like so we're talking from one end of Utah to the other. We had zero percent, and wasn't it almost ninety down there? Was that? Am I remembering yeah, that right? Still, yeah. So both. We, so we monitor um, fawn survival have for a decade or more on the Pine Valley, the Monroe, the San Juan units, and they're. Pine Valley and Monroe are like record high. We've never seen fawn survival this high ever uh, in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. See, and that's amazing that we can get, I mean, in one state, go from zero. I mean, it's just wild, you know. And But that goes to show, I mean, how important the moisture is down there. I, it's just, that, I mean, that's all I need to know is like that evidence that, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and, and, it, and Utah's, you know, maybe more diverse sort of environmentally conditions and for sure in most states but we see a tremendous gradient like you're saying you know this this year was really bad up north but just as as bad as it was up north it was equally as good down south yeah and that's that's what i guess is cool and it gives you know it's just something to think about that i know locally it's, you go to the coffee shop, whatever, and it's pretty, like people have a pretty bad outlook. We'll just put it that way. Um, it's yeah. bad. The sky is falling to a lot of people. But I think that's the deal is, you know, you look down there and I mean, four or five years down the road. I mean, that could have that could have a long term effect down there for quite a few years. So that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, it should be good down there for a number of years. The, the other thing we should we need to try and put these things in context too um and and some of that context it just got done well there's been a couple book chapters that we've been working on this summer and and one of them was a book uh, that was on a whole bunch of different wildlife species and, and range management practices and what you can do to try and benefit those species with range management as part of that process i, I went through and looked at like the historical estimates of abundance of deer how many mule deer we had mm -hmm. uh going back as far as records go and you know the farther you go back the harder it is to have any kind of accurate hard yeah hard sure. number but there's crazy things out there like you know there's a journal uh from bryce canyon area which right now i mean there's plenty of deer mule deer in bryce canyon and there's like early settlers who are recording in their journal that you know, I've lived here for a year and a half, and I saw my first mule deer today. Yeah, see, and that's so interesting when you think back. Like, yeah, and that the same thing in Cash. Like, I know in the Cash Valley, um, 
there's a, a journal from a trapper that was covering that. And he did do, like talked about a mule deer. Like I, I think he mentioned, I got to see, um, the first mule deer I'd seen in so long. And like what he was talking about was all of the sheep that was everywhere. That's what was yeah. everywhere was sheep. Why? Uh, yeah. Water, yeah. Rocky mountain sheep. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we have a tendency, I think to some extent, to look back on maybe the recent past, mm-hmm. which would be, you know, whatever, whenever your grandpa or yeah, for sure. Grandma were hunting or, you know, and they're, and we look back and we think that's how it's always was or how it should always be. But really these populations have fluctuated over time and there's been periods of high abundance, periods of low abundance. And it's certainly where you're at in, in the Northern States, you know, bad winters and die off. It, it, it's not a new thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so they'll, they'll bounce back. It's, you know, it might be a little tough for a few years. Um, but, but there, it's not, the sky's not falling. Yeah. They'll, they'll come back. No, and I'm glad you mentioned that because then I think there's a lot of things that, yeah. And I think that's so true is, I mean, even as a kid growing up here, um, things that have changed in just my life since, you know, the eighties, like we, we really didn't have elk. I mean, there was some elk, yeah. but they were rare. You didn't, it was, it was not, an occurrence like I'm seeing now where there's elk all over the, I mean, everywhere I go, I can find elk. And that's just an interesting thing as, you know, things do ebb and flow and yeah, it's, it's just interesting. Yeah. I grew up hunting central Utah on the Manti. I still hunt it. And my, you know, grew up going with my dad and my dad loves elk. Way mm-hmm. more than, yeah. Way more than, I mean, I like elk. <laughs> he's too, one of them. <laughs> but I'm a, yeah, he's one of them. But the, but the reason he does is because they were rare. Yes. When he was a kid hunting. And so it was always really exciting to see elk when he was hunting on the Manti as a kid, you know, 40 years ago. And you fast forward to me, and, you know, that's our biggest elk herd in the state. Yep. And elk are awesome. And I like elk, but I'm much more of a deer guy in part because maybe they're the one that's a little more rare now uh, at least in some places for sure uh, you know it's kind of interesting thing about that yeah no it is, and it is it's just super crazy to especially to talk to guys like like your dad or you know that that age of guys like i remember um i would have i was a young boy probably i don't know if i would even have been five or six tagging along with my dad deer hunting in a herd of elk come by us and i remember my dad like telling me like this is cool like you're not it wasn't a common occurrence back then it was just it was different you know it was like my first bull that i ever heard bugle and i i mean i went years without you just you didn't see them they just weren't around in like that time and it's i don't know it's crazy to think about that because young kid growing up now and like what we have on the landscape the past you know 20 plus years here i mean it's been uh, and they seem to just keep rising it's just interesting stuff yeah no interesting for sure yeah does seem, there does seem to be a little bit of smoke on you know is there a negative relationship between elk and deer if you have a lot of it i mean you have less deer there does seem to be a little smoke there but it's tough to it's a real complex issue that's hard to tease out. Yeah, and I, I was uh, yeah, so like that, and I think that was the deer elk 
something project in Wyoming. I think that's kind of what they were trying to look at. Um, so it was, I think, Wyoming, University of Wyoming. I know there was a few and they were doing a, a number of studies with that and it was a long term thing. But I know there was some stuff kind of and it's interesting to me. It's just been one of those things that your average hunter wants endless amounts of elk and they want endless amounts of deer on the same unit and don't understand why we can't have both i think there's a lot of examples that could be thrown around as you know places that i know that historically had that it was mule deer there was few elk they were nothing like they are now and I think, I don't know, in my head, I feel like there has to be some correlation. I, I don't know. And I've said, it's just, it's hard for me not to think there'd be some correlation with booming elk herds and no effect on deer. That, that's hard for me to swallow, especially when I see them competing on, you know, in the winter range, um, that kind of thing. It's just different. And you watch a, three bulls sit up in mule deer winter range and like what they'll do to the brows through there i mean they're like a herd of a hundred deer like the damage they can do i and that might be a little extreme but it's it's pretty wild to see that sure yeah it's a yeah yeah it's a tough one to it's a tough one to um really say and i think you know and the other thing is, is hunters generally in my opinion they want to blame everything but elk you know we didn't never you you don't want to yeah you don't want to say well hey one thing i love is affecting the other thing i love yeah it's just a that's a tough one yeah the other thing that i think we we struggle with a bit as hunters is we try to we want we've got these crazy extremes going from drought to winter Mm -hmm. big winter and everything in between, but yet we somehow want like constant. We just want it to be consistently good yes. all the time, every year. Yes. And I think what we it would help us if we could get more in kind of the mind frame and mindset of you know, these populations fluctuate. Uh, we we need to take advantage of the good years. It's a, it's a little bit of an ephemeral resource. It's hard to stockpile lots of mature bucks year over year over year uh and so anyways just just a a little bit more awareness of those sort of natural fluctuations and you know kind of how we interact with the resource that way no that that's so good and it's so true and i i hear so many hunters (laughs) that think um restricting buck harvest is going to put more deer on the mountain and it's really i mean it's not like there's that's evidence that a bunch of bucks on the mountain sure hunters are happy but it's not putting uh it's not growing the deer population it's not helping in fact those bucks don't have fawns last time i checked they can't have fawns they can't grow the deer herd and actually they're competing with does and fawns that are on the landscape it's yeah and that's a tough one to to sell to a lot of hunters and it's uh it causes i don't know I, I think hunters should be careful what they wish for. I know um, like a unit up here in Idaho, I sat and I've heard the locals for years like, hey, we got to control this. It's got to be controlled. The hunting's got to be controlled. 
And then when they do control the hunting, it really doesn't get all that much better. I mean, it did help. There was a few bigger bucks, but now these hunters thought, well, I'll give up hunting every year to hunt once every two years for a bigger buck. Well, now it did start off that way. Now it's one every 10 years, if you're lucky, you know, or seven years. It's just, they get super out of control. Point creep comes in word spreads on the internet that this is a great you and then all of a sudden you don't get to hunt there anymore and i i don't know it's hard for me to watch opportunity loss happen all over to the ability to go hunting all to have a few bigger bucks on the landscape I, it's a tough yeah. it's tough for me yeah me too uh i'm probably like on a personal note i've hunted the the manta unit here in central utah I've had a tag. Uh, I can't think of a year I have not had a tag. It's you know, it's a yeah. general unit managed for fifteen to seventeen, managed for opportunity, mm-hmm. and and I'm I'm in the enrolled in the dedicated hunter program. So yeah, I've got a you know, I got another tag next year that goes with that. But after that, I am most likely based on the odds and what you know point situation. I'm most likely going to gap a year or two for the first time in my life yep. of, not, of not having a deer tag. And, you know, hopefully my kids will draw one or whatever and I'll still get to go, but man, that sucks. It does. And that's the big thing is I think, um, there's, it's so important to have that opportunity here. Cause I mean, eventually, and I know this is happening with some of my family down in like Southern Utah, I mean, it's, you know, once in five years or what, four years on a general yeah. hunt. And I'm just like, what, you know, like, that's just crazy to me. Cause I've, I've been up here up North hunting crappy units and <laughs> forever. <laughs> and you always can get, um, well, tags used to be, I mean, I've always had one since I was, I've never went a year since I was 14 years old without having one. So it's pretty interesting and it's happening in Idaho. Um, you know, I think there's more and more of a push that I know from, if you ask the average sportsman that they want it restricted, I'm hearing a bunch of stuff in Wyoming. They recently set out a survey, I think to most of the residents, um, asking their opinion on, uh, like, basically having to choose between archery and rifle and then you know when they were talking about maybe making limited quota it's just that seems like where things are going because so many sportsmen are upset but i it's like when times are bad it seems like everybody just gets really wild and they want to see all these crazy changes but what sucks is when it goes that way it never comes back to me i i never see it come back once it goes to like the southern utah units i doubt we're going to see them um like be easier to draw i really doubt that's going to happen and so Uh that's just yeah i mean you look at our recent history here in utah and it's exactly what you're talking about. We're very, very quick to cut. We mm-hmm. have declines and die-offs, bad winters, and, and those cuts are probably appropriate. Uh, but on the flip side, we're extremely slow to increase. Yes. Um, you know, Utah's estimate, the last real good cycle we had, uh, like in the early 2010s, 11, 12, 13, 14, uh, estimates are that we grew, you know, maybe as many as a hundred thousand mule deer mm-hmm. in Utah during that. Had had 
you know, great conditions, monsoon moisture, etc. And, you know, the state could come up with the exact number, but, you know, we, we increased the deer herd by maybe 25% and increased the permits by something like 5% or something, yeah. you know, it's yep. just not, just not corresponding to it. Yeah, and I think it's starting to look at some of that stuff and then, you know, and you think about like technology and how easy we it is for us to even just to think about traveling. You know, I remember, you know, going on long road trips as a kid. I mean, golly, you're thinking about everything. Is your vehicle going to make it? I don't even think about any of that anymore. I don't even, you don't even, I mean, I drive to whatever. You do, you don't even think about that kind of stuff anymore. And then all our advances in technology, our weapon systems, all of this stuff and hunters want tags, but yet they don't want to give up. I don't know. There, It's just, it's tough sometimes. I can't imagine being a wildlife agency trying to come up with policy to make everybody happy and to try to give, you know, opportunity. It's a, they've got a tough, it's, it's just tough. That's a tough road. Um, you know, nobody's ever happy. And I don't know. It's just one of those things, but they, they got a tough job. Um, in general, I mean, extremely dedicated group of people doing their best. Yep. But it's, it's frustrating for me to hear all the, the trash talk and the bad mouth thing from people that don't plug in. So, if yeah. you, you know, if you, it's, it's great to have an opinion, but you know, it's, it's, it's a complex system trying to manage, trying to grow more deer, et cetera, plug in, understand it, get involved, help out. Uh, you know. Yeah. And not all of us. And that's the other thing too, is I always try to think about this, that I think most of the time, like in my circle of friends and just, people I associate with, they're pretty crazy about hunting. Like it's all they think about, but for a lot of the population, they're not like that. And I think that segment of the population, the hunting public, and I I've told Robbie this, like the weekend warrior to me, or the guy that goes hunting maybe on opening day, or maybe he goes, I don't know, middle of the week, but he was just a, a casual hunter. Let's call him. They're the most valuable people in the hunting public to me, I think. They contribute the same amount that everybody else does. They buy their licenses, everything, but they're really not a detriment to the resource. And I just think, like, that's the kind of people we need, like, that want to go to camp and they want to hang out and they're contributing and they're voting. They're, they love hunting. They support yeah. it they're just important to have. And I think a lot of sure. people, you know, throw rocks at the guy that's shooting the two point, whatever, but I'm just like, you know, whatever, like he's out having fun and it's his thing. And not everybody thinks the way that like we do like serious buck hunters. And I think they're important to remember. And then just kids growing up. Like I think about, Man, if I didn't have opportunity to hunt as a kid growing up and the opportunities I had, I would have done something else that I could have done all the time. You know, I, I'm not oh, yeah. I'm not that guy that's going to be able to get into hunting and think about it like I do and, you know, go everywhere like I do. If I would have never had that experience as a kid and it worries me, some of these sure. kids you know, going seven years, how do they ever get, how do they ever get involved in hunting? I, I don't know. It just, yeah, well, it's, it's a tough one. It is tough. Uh, on the on the biological side, the one thing I think about a lot too, you know, you mentioned somebody might not be out there shooting a two point. Um, you know, someone who coordinates and helps coordinate the collar monitoring effort 
and it is just tough to, to, to grow them and keep them alive. And especially those yearling bucks. Yep. They're vulnerable to a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Highway mortality. Yes. Uh, you know, mountain lions. And so you, know, you, you start doing the math. The math gets gets crazy when you start thinking about how do we grow six, seven, eight-year-old bucks? And how many do you have to start with? And then if you just plug in like average survival rates for all the different ages, I mean, it's a huge, huge number uh, to get to where you've got, you know, a good number of, of mature bucks. And so anyways, there's there's some opportunity, in my opinion, to, to for people like you're talking about to yes. get out there, experience the great outdoors, harvest that two point. You know, there was a 50% chance that thing was going to, die anyways over the next year before it would be available as a two and a half year old. Yep. Uh, and you know, maybe there's a way to, to allow that resource to be used, uh, by those folks that want to do it. And then, you know, I don't know, it's hard to balance cause yeah. And then they I'm aren't there on the last weekend of the hunt com- bothering me. I'm all by myself. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. In the middle of the week. You yeah. Know, you, Feeling, feeling a part of side hill looking for a, a big buck yeah 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 no it's it's just i don't know i think people i like people are gonna do um hunting is different for a bunch of people and i think we should all remember that and it's just good that they're out there supporting it and participating yeah. and hopefully they're voting and being involved and you know but it's hard to when the only people that really get involved at the various, um, you know, public forums um, where they're trying to dictate tag numbers and that kind of thing. It's like the squeaky wheel gets the grease and usually that's the really serious hunters. And yeah, sure. absolutely. yeah, it's a there's tough a, thing yeah, to manage. A, I think there's a silent majority of folks that the like the state agencies just don't hear from. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah and it's it's interesting yeah it's just one of those things i don't know it's just tough and these uh when hunting's hard and then i think we just as hunters we get pretty radical and and i've even you know i i I mean my head goes there but i try to just always remember like hey it's gonna come back it's all good we'll figure this all out so yeah well, buddy, I sure appreciate it. Can we get you on um, maybe after December captures? I would love to. I hope maybe we'll have you come back on and you can tell me that we just broke every record and we yeah. have the fattest year ever in the state of Utah. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back on. We'll be catching, uh, you know, it'll be a busy right after Thanksgiving through about December 18th or so. Um, but we could, I could get, we could, we'd have, you know. Yeah, maybe right after the first of the year, we'll hook up yeah, or something. Absolutely. Uh, and yep. Randy, if there's anybody that's listening that like would want to be involved, maybe they live somewhere in Utah, they'd want to be involved doing some of them fall captures. Is that something, what's the best way that I could like try to let them know? Because yeah, I do have absolutely. tons of interest, like guys, like, hey, how do you get involved in this stuff? And it'd just be, I think it'd be a learning experience for a lot of people. Yeah. Absolutely. And we have lots of people out uh, every fall. Best thing to do, you, you can certainly reach out to me if you want. Um, 
you know, my email is just my name, Randy underscore Larson at BYU.edu. Larson's with an E. So you're certainly welcome to email me. The other way that I think, if, you know, if you've got a local biologist that you know with, with DWR, they they will be the, the point person for a particular unit on on the captures that go on on that unit. So you, you can you can reach out to them. There is, uh, it's always helpful to have extra hands there to help, you know, transport the animals after the helicopter drops them off and help release them. Uh, there's measurements and some other things that, that even people who are there for the first time can help us with. So, you know, reach out uh, and, and get involved. It is and can be super educational. Yes. Uh, you can see how we age them. You can see what the ultrasounds are all about, how we measure body fat. Uh, anyways, yeah, it's, uh, we need help and a great opportunity to get your, your feet wet, so to speak, uh, with some modern, you know, management and monitoring. Yeah. And I, I think it's so cool. Like I know, um, sometimes, you know, I'll see, um, various guys bring, you know, kids along and they can kind of see yes. that process. Um, great opportunity for them to get out of school and actually learn something. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't let your, uh, don't let your schooling stand in the way of your education. Yeah. That's a, that's a Steve Sorensen <laughs> famous line. He's always yeah. said that with his kid and I <laughs> laugh so hard. Yeah. So pretty funny. Yeah. Awesome. yeah no, I'd love to have kids out. Yeah reach out we can we can totally accommodate that well that's awesome randy and randy on your instagram let's just mention that one more time it's uh it's i think it's just yeah wildlife prof perfect everybody can find that yeah you can find that we are uh and the other thing that comes out you know sometimes quarterly sometimes a little slower than quarterly is we'll have a utah specific update on survival rates and so there's an email listserv if you want to send me your email i can add you to that oh yeah i'm glad you mentioned that yeah get on that list everybody like that's cool stuff to get that update and yeah that's yes so anyways that that would be another way we're trying to share the information that everybody's helping pay for and contribute to well buddy i sure appreciate you man i really appreciate you always being willing to jump on and i really appreciate it so that was good stuff Anytime. Good talking to you. Okay, Randy. Thank you. 